Welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we are talking about the Ereshkigal working by Jonathan L. Howard. This is a story that was published in 2010. It's also a story that was nominated by a Patreon supporter. And of course, we, we want to say thank you so much for that. Yeah, thanks. This is the second Johannes Cabal story we've read. And I'll tell you what, in reading this story, I realized... I should probably try one of the novels because there are so many questions that I have about this character, Johannes Cabal, even after reading the second short story within in it. Uh, it's a fun story. It's a fun little action romp. Uh, so why don't we just get right to it? Yeah, let's just get into this. This is, uh, this is kind of a, a romp, I would say. This was not the first time a corpse had abruptly sat up on the mortuary slab and turned to face Johannes Cabal with murder in its eyes. It was, however, the first time one had done so without waiting to be formally reanimated. They stared at one another for a moment, before the corpse, apparently unaware of the faux pas, made a cry like somebody receiving terrible news and lunged at Cabal. So that's how the, the story opening. Those are the, the opening two lines of the Ereshkigal working, and they, they do clue us into a number of things. Uh, one, this is going to be a zombie story. Uh, two, our protagonist is a necromancer. And three... This story is going to be funny, right? This is a, a weird fiction humor piece. We have not done much of this sort of thing on the show before. Uh, as you said, Brandon, that we have done another of these Johannes Cabal stories on Patreon. But otherwise, I think that the obscure medical history that we did at the beginning of this year is the only other comedic story that we've covered. You and I have said many times on the air that comedy, not like the genre comedy where like people don't die and there's a happy ending or something like that, uh, as opposed to tragedy. But like comedy as we think of it today is not really what we go to fiction for, though I have enjoyed reading these Johannes Cabal stories. Um, so there's a lot of humor in this story, a lot of wordplay. It's very British, very in the vein of Douglas Adams and even Charles uh, Strauss, for those who have read his books, uh, his Lovecraftian horror novels that take place in a weird fiction universe, the Laundry Files, I think they're called. You and I, Glenn, don't go to these stories for humor. We got to put that up front because when we put on our critic hats, it's important that we let our audience know that humor, comedy, that is not really our go-to genre. It's not where we have the most fun in storytelling, though it is enjoyable in its own right. But you always got to let people know up front what your Eden is, so to speak, in storytelling. And I don't think for either of us, as I've said, comedy is that. Yeah, we balance each other out in a number of ways, but this is not one of them because this is just something that, that you and I share. It's a taste that we share. Whereas Valerie and I have very different opinions about this, right? Valerie, uh, in fact, I think we have said on Lower Decks at some point, right, that, that Valerie goes to Buffy the Vampire Slayer to laugh. I go to Buffy the Vampire Slayer to cry. And I'm okay when it makes me <laughs> laugh. And Valerie's maybe okay when it makes her cry, but it's that's not what the other it's not what we're going for uh, and that's a balance that she and I have over on lower decks that I think works out when we're doing something that is uh, is funnier than I like and uh, maybe more uh, uh, depressingly emotional than Valerie likes but yeah you and I uh, sort of double down on that here yeah and once again in this short story as we said we have one other Johannes Cabal story up on Patreon if you're interested in our coverage of it it was the first one that uh it was the first one that Jonathan Howard had written called uh, Johannes Cabal and the Blustery Day. That, that was a fun episode to, to do. It was a fun story to read. But we're being introduced to Cabal once again in Medias Res. Uh, he's in the middle of some action. We're not sure of his character motivations. And we're not really sure what he's doing 
beyond scavenging for body parts for his experiments, which, because this is a short story and not one of the novels with more fully developed character motivations and themes, uh, we don't know what his experiments are. But it's clear that he's a necromancer because he's surprised that a corpse is reanimated without his doing it. Um, So we're thrown into another level of conflict. And as we'll see in a moment, beyond that, level of surprise as conflict for the character. He didn't reanimate the corpse who did. Uh, We're going to get another level of conflict because there's another person in the room. This is a textbook perfect opening of a short story, right? Starts right in the middle, lets us know everything that we need to know about the setup and doesn't get bogged down in anything that we don't need to know for the story to progress. I mean, this is, it's, it's textbook perfect. I mean, this is the sort of, you you, you could teach this opening in a, in a writing class. And in fact, I don't know, somebody probably is, I hope. But uh, but yeah, let's get to, uh, to what's actually going on here, right? So Cabal is in a morgue. He is here to get some corpses for his secret necromantic investigations. This is the day of the, the town carnival. And so he has taken advantage of the distraction to allow himself to, to break into the municipal mortuary and then help himself to the goods that he's after here, the, the corpses. Uh, but his mischief did not go undetected. A local constable saw him sneaking down the alley to the back door of the morgue and looking very shifty, very suspicious while doing it. And when the constable followed Cabal into the morgue, though, uh, he was met with a crowbar and found himself unconscious and uh, and then tied up. And uh, all of that's the immediate backstory because our, our opening scene takes place, you know, 10 minutes or so later, which is a device that I thought was really quite funny. And the deal is this. Some necromancer who is not Johannes Cabal is raising the dead here. Cabal dispatches this immediate zombie with a pistol that he carries with him. But the morgue, of course, as morgues are, uh, is full of corpses and uh, they're all in the process of reanimating. So it is time to get out of here. Uh, and of course, he has to take the constable with him as they escape to the top floor. And so now at this point, really just right here at the beginning, the story is going to take on something of a, uh, uh, I guess, buddy cop comedy routine here between the two of them. And we get two full pages of Cabal uh, making fun of the constable's inability to come to terms with the fact that there's a zombie apocalypse happening in his town. So yeah, buddy cop. Yeah, it's definitely a two-hander, and it is a lot of fun, and it's a great way to deliver exposition. Uh, Though the cop is not surprised that Cabal is a necromancer, he is surprised that there are more than one necromancers, perhaps, (laughs) and is definitely having a hard time coming to terms with the uh, situation at hand. There's a funny line here where when Cabal dispatches the reanimated corpse that he did not reanimate, and he... Shoots the corpse in the back of the head with a pistol and he calls it an ad hoc deanimation. It's that <laughs> level of like wordplay and stuff that is the the humor of this story. One thing that really jumped out to me upon rereading this story was that Cabal's ability to sneak around and be pretty good at knowing his environment and developing contingencies and engaging in his dark necromantic activities uh, without being noticed or caught is pretty crucial at least in the denouement of this story. So in rereading, as I said, I'm thinking uh, that him being caught by the police officer, though you definitely needed that second character in the story, you needed this to be a two-hander, might have been handled a little differently because him being not as cautious in the beginning of the story here, I think undermines what we need from Cabal at the end of the story. So just that's a storytelling 
quirk here that jumped out at me on the reread of the story. But I'm not really complaining because this story is meant to move quickly, and it really does. It is a quick read. It is a fun read. And the story absolutely works on its own terms. So again, not a complaint, just something that that jumped out to me on a on a second read. Well, and in the the next scene, as we get going from here, Cabal is going to be taking, I think, uh, quite a bit more care, and is also going to say some things that let us know that you know he had multiple escape routes planned from the Morgan case that he did actually get caught. And I guess he was kind of on the ball here in the sense that although he maybe wasn't as careful as he should have been breaking into the morgue in the first place, uh, he was prepared for someone to find him there. I mean, this crowbar business. I guess you know he was ready to do that. Uh, you know, this wasn't something I think that he uh, he had to decide to do in the the moment. Moment, right, he was prepared for that uh, in, a, in a in a strange way. But the together the they, the two of them make their way to the the top floor, and from the their vantage point there, Cabal can see that there is a core group of zombies that the the puppet master, which is whoever it is that started this business, uh, a core group of zombies that the the puppet master is controlling. But then there is a larger group of zombies who are just idle uh, without any actual specific instructions from the person who has reanimated them. But then Cabal sees him. He sees the the puppet master who is uh, standing on the roof of the town hall with a, a great view of everything that's going on. And uh, just as Cabal notices this, though, the, the doors to the downstairs morgue burst open, and so it is time to flee again. But now Cabal knows what the, the mission here has to be, and he explains the whole thing to the constable. So uh, what's going on is a zombie apocalypse, though it should technically be called the Ereshkigal Working, which, hey, that's the name of the story. And it's going to be up to the two of them to stop it. And step one of stopping it is keeping themselves alive. Uh, so they get out of the building. Cabal kills a zombie with a knife. That was actually a pretty gruesome part of the story. Uh, and then they get to a, a safe vantage again, and uh, they think about what step two should be. And here we get a little bit more explanation. Uh, This time it's about how zombies work in this speculative setting, in this imaginary world. As has already been hinted to us, the puppet master can only control a few of these zombies at a time. It's uh, some small number of these that can act with a real purpose. Say, looking for Johannes Cabal, for instance. Well, (laughs) a larger number of them are operating just as kind of a mob, but then the rest are just kind of standing around on hold. But even though they're just standing around on hold, they remain extremely dangerous because they are possessed by a feral magic that will spur them to kill if the opportunity presents itself. And this this magic, and, and maybe I should say that force is really the word that Cabal uses here. I mean, it's not capitalized like it's Star Wars, but you know, like power rather than using the word magic. But this this magic, this force uh, wants to kill everyone and it is going to, to try, right? So this kind of abstraction seems to have some some agency here in this world. And the, the puppet master is really only holding a leash on this thing. And he can only operate that leash in a small radius of about three miles. So if this spreads beyond that, then the world just will be over. Uh, it's really just a matter of when. Uh, also, this is going to happen if the puppet master ever falls asleep again. Uh, also, <laughs> the arrest Google working <laughs> is not reversible. It is here to stay, though Cabal has some sort of plan that he's going to reveal to us in the next section. Yeah, and this plan includes the harbor on some level. Uh, He asks Copeland some questions. Copeland is the constable. He's the policeman that... uh, that Cabal has hit with a crowbar earlier in the story. And he's being a reluctant assistant, and I think that tension works pretty well for the story. There's also some fun moments in this section. Cabal 
does some quick apocalypse math that I think is really funny. He, he <laughs> talks about the number of people who die on average in the three-mile air radius area and how quickly the Arishkagal working can spread and how quickly the world will end if things get out of hand. Basically, Cabal also says that whoever uses this power, whoever does this ritual, is an idiot. Uh, and there's this whole maybe, I don't know, pedagogical moment between Cabal and the constable. And this all this conversation also has its moments uh, in, in, in the story. I think it's a great delivery of exposition. But one thing it really highlighted to me was Cabal's indifference to death, which works because he's a necromancer. <laughs> but as one who can reanimate corpses, Cabal's not so concerned about even children dying. It doesn't even really cross his mind that that's a bad thing. And we're told at the opening of the story that Cabal's faults are mostly moral. Uh, and I'm still unsure what he needs to raise the dead for in terms of research or character motivation. I'm sure that this could be corrected if I read one of the novels. And also, we learn that Cabal has a problem with churches as Cabal and the constable talk about some uh, action movie logistics uh, in, in a bit of exposition. But there's a lot of questions that I have that I'm not going to be too hard on the story on because I just haven't done my homework. I haven't read any of the novels. And I think there's probably, I think these are probably cabal side quests that we've been reading, Glenn, more than the main thrust of what's going on with this character. So it's not a big deal to me that I don't know this stuff because the story, as I said earlier, really does work on its own terms. And as we're in a zombie apocalypse story, that's really interesting to me uh, and the way it's being handled. And that will be the core of our discussion is talking about how this story really handles uh, the zombie apocalypse, which is uh, a major subgenre of horror that usually has something to say or critique about uh, the world as such. And we're going to be looking at whether or not this story is doing that or why the zombie apocalypse is being used at all. I love the fact that you've labeled this a side quest. I think that is exactly how this feels. And and really, we were talking earlier about how this story begins in Media Rest. And I said this is a textbook perfect opening to a short story. And what makes it a textbook perfect opening to the short story is that there really is no first act to this story in which we would – and because that's where we would learn what – Johannes Cabal is up to, why he's going to the morgue. We would get all of that narrated. Maybe, you know, we would have seen his day start with making coffee and thinking about his uh, his shopping list at the, the morgue. And we'd learn something about his backstory and uh, his emotional state. And then he would get to the morgue and this would be act two of that story. But that is not how short stories are supposed to to operate. And I don't mean, you know, novellas or novelettes, but a proper short story really shouldn't actually have a first act. You can write that first act, but then you need to delete it. And I think that was actually O. Henry's formal advice to short story writers was delete your first three pages. Like, or, you know, not delete because he wasn't typing on a computer, but, you know, cut them. Uh, and then what you've got is actually a proper short story. And that seems to be what Jonathan Howard has done here and and done it perfectly. And I do think it's part of the charm of these stories that we just have no idea what it means to be a necromancer, like what that is as a as a job, what what that means for what his his daily life is like or anything like that. And I, I find that to be part of the the charm of this story. I also want to talk about this business with the the antipathy or aversion to churches. It's the the constable wants to run through the churchyard as a as a way to, you know, get from point A to point B. And Cabal does not want to do that. He thinks that's a, a bad idea. And the constable is the one who levels then this charge at Johannes Cabal that because he's a necromancer, because he does 
dark magic. He must not like churches and uh, must be a religious or something like that, hostile to religion or an atheist. But we don't ever get a response to that from Cabal. And my inference there actually was that this was kind of a joke, right? That the constable's the one who's not thinking this through. Uh, and may- maybe this is something where American English doesn't serve us very well because churchyard means cemetery. So it's the middle of a zombie apocalypse and the constable wants to run through a cemetery. Yes, that was sort of my understanding as well. But it's also not shown to us that the, like bodies are rising from the cemetery. They're all around the town. And I think if the constable had seen bodies in the cemetery, that plan would have been... Uh, absolutely tabled or not even mentioned to begin with. So that's why I feel a little torn with it is, yes, it is clearly a cemetery that is a bad idea to run through, but it also doesn't seem as though bodies are rising there because they have a clear uh, visual field. They have a clear field of vision to see it, at least in terms of my understanding of the geography of the story. And that I'm just, I'm just throwing a flag on the play there just to be nitpicky, but uh it doesn't matter because we're going to get some information about how great Johannes Cabal is about knowing his area and how to get around. And, you know, he's going to he's going to best the puppet master, as we'll see in the next section of the story. All right. Well, when the zombie apocalypse comes to Philly, I'm going to just go ahead and let you run through the cemetery, whether or not there's zombies <laughs> come through. But I don't, it does not matter to me. If there are no zombies, I'm still not running through the cemetery. Uh, there are dead bodies buried my- all over <laughs> Philly. Philly's a graveyard anyway. You can't uh, You can't even worry about that. <laughs> yes, that is true. Most of the public parks are are actually old potter's fields. So yeah, uh, that's, a, that's a pro tip for anyone living in Philly or really living anywhere, right? There are there are bodies everywhere. So uh, I don't know. Get a hot air balloon. That's uh, that's really my uh, my advice. <laughs> Well, also the- how this story resolves itself on some <laughs> level. So sure, yeah, absolutely right. Uh, let's let's get to that. So the next section opens from the the point of view of the puppet master, uh, at least for the opening paragraph, and it's it's him gloating about how easy this has turned out to be. Uh, but of course, that's not going to be true, right? As soon as he has thought this, Cabal is there on the roof of the town hall, and it is time for a showdown between the hero and the villain. But since this story is a funny story, this is really a bit silly, and it's uh, maybe even a bit anticlimactic as well. Cabal has no idea who this dude is, but this dude thinks of himself as Cabal's arch nemesis. He's been hunting for Cabal for years because Cabal killed his father. But even when he tells him this, it's, it still takes Cabal a minute to recognize the names that the puppet master is using as he explains all of this. Uh, and of course, Cabal didn't really kill this dude's father, though he did know him uh, and know something about his death. Uh, but that information does not matter to the puppet master, who is obsessed with killing Cabal, is obsessed with getting his revenge on Johannes Cabal. Uh, it turns out also that the puppet master here has no idea that the Ereshkigal working is as serious business as it actually is. And Cabal plays a, a little trick on him here. It's not quite, hey, your shoelace is untied, but it is pretty close to that. Uh, he gets him to look into the distance with his binoculars by just saying, hey, what's that over there? And uh, while he's doing that, uh, Cabal attaches the, the constable's handcuffs to this dude. Or really, maybe to be more precise, he attaches one end of the handcuffs because the other end is now connected to a rope that is in turn attached to one of the giant mylar balloons that were in use for the, the town's festival. And now, down below, on the ground level, the, the constable cuts the rope, and the, the balloon begins to drift away in the wind, headed towards the ocean, and it's just carrying the puppet master with it. And as long as he doesn't die until he's at least three miles offshore, uh, the zombie apocalypse is 
over. Uh, but there is one little coda that we get, and that is that even though Johannes Cabal has saved the world and saved the day, the constable still has to arrest him for breaking into the mortuary because he is lawful good, right? But uh, Johannes Cabal is the Batman of necromancers, and he's gone. He's, he's just vanished by the time the constable gets to the roof. And that is the end of the story. Yeah, I mean, you call the constable lawful good, but we have two point of view shifts in the last act of this story, which really surprised me. But the one where we get the constable's point of view, it's revealed that he hated his boss, the chief inspector, and he kind of kills his zombie boss with relish, which is maybe part of the zombie apocalypse subgenre, the the mindset of the heroes uh, of the the people who imagine themselves having survived are being able to kind of uh, guilt-free kill their enemies or those who have uh, p- maybe made them feel bad or uh, hurt their pride in some way. Uh, it's it's an interesting moment for the constable. It's an interesting storytelling choice to have two point of view shifts in this story. But I wonder, you know, why this guy who just has killed his boss, uh, who this town has been devastated by this massive catastrophe why he's so interested in putting uh, cabal in jail it's just a question i have but maybe it is uh the maybe it's just the fact that i've had too many points of view in the last act of this story that's uh kind of raised my hackles a little bit there, there's a lot in this section there's the point of view shift as i pointed out i do su- you know i suppose we needed the villain's backstory at some point but it's curious is th- that howard decided to switch the points of view and give it and then give us the villain's backstory revealed largely through conversation anyway. And the conversation kind of plays out in that, uh, you know, famous street fighter, the film scene between Bison and Chun-Li when, <laughs> when Raul Julia, who plays Bison, kind of says, like, for you, this was the most important day of your life when I came and destroyed your village. For me, it was Tuesday. Uh, it's kind of that same dynamic between Cabal and this guy, Maleficarus Jr. And I do like this line here where... The narrator of the story, the third-person narrator, is reflecting on the nature of these sorts of deadly feuds. And he says, in much the same way that feuds and vendettas can run for generations without troubling themselves to find a decent casus belli, it seemed to the outraged family pride of Maleficarus Jr., a planet full of undead was a small price to pay for hurt feelings. And, and this is what I mean <laughs> about being kind of a part of this attitude of the survivors of a zombie apocalypse, there is an odd sense of relief that uh, if you're not, if, if you survive and the people who have, I don't know, made you uh, maybe oppressed you in some way are dead, uh, that that is kind of a small price to pay. So it's an interesting note. And we see maybe that same attitude played out with the constable. And I do think it's funny that Johannes is able to best Maleficarus with this classic made you look scenario. It's it's pretty funny. It's a great way to kind of end the story and move the action and close it really rapidly. So now that we're at the end of the story, there's a bunch of things uh, we can take up in the discussion. And I do want to start with this uh, craft and POV question. I really only have two questions, and that'll be the first one. But before we get to the discussion, there are just a few things we want to... There are just a few announcements we want to make uh, to our audience. 
Right. We want to talk about another contest that we're doing. This is kind of a, a follow-up to the review writing contest that we did earlier this year. This is going to be a social media sharing contest. Uh, you know, Quite simply, what we're looking for is for you, our listeners, to share our podcasts on social media. Uh, we are going to incentivize that with some prizes and make a contest out of it. Uh, Brandon will talk about that aspect of it in just a, a little bit. But I wanted to say a few things about what would be helpful to us. And of course, uh, you know, a first obvious thing is telling your friends and followers on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, about our shows, what you love about our shows, and why you think that they might too, right? That's the easiest and most obvious thing. There are, of course, also a lot of communities on uh, on Reddit and, and Facebook, I think Goodreads as well, that are dedicated to the, the genres and authors and also even the, the TV shows that we cover here on the network. Uh, I will say that, of course, we don't want people spamming those groups, but if you are a member and a contributor of a group like that, we would love for you to let the other people in those communities know about our shows. Yeah, it would be a huge help to us as we continue to think about ways to grow the network and just grow the base of listeners that we have. Uh, we love doing this and we want more people to play with us. It's, it's a <laughs> lot of fun and we love it. And we also want to take a moment and thank all of you who reviewed us on iTunes or Stitcher or uh, wherever you review podcasts uh, and leave reviews and especially not just rating us whatever star rating you think we deserve, but writing a review. The words really help us out on those pages. I want to encourage you to continue doing that. It does help us out. But here are the prizes we're going to offer for social media sharing competition. We're going to do one free bonus episode. And we'll give the winner also two free nominations in the voting process when we decide what stories we're going to cover. Uh, we're really looking forward to getting the Clay Temple Media name out there. If you support us on Patreon, you see there are things we want to do like redesign the website and <laughs> other sorts of things that we've had on our minds for a long time. Um, right now, all we can do is really focus on the show. So again, thank you to all who support us. Thanks to everybody who's taken the time to write us a review uh, and to rate our shows. Please keep doing that. And now we really want your help getting the word out. Yeah, and I'll clarify just a little bit there that it is three distinct prizes, right? So one of them is the free bonus episode, which is normally something we sell for $150. Uh, and then there are two other people who will get nominations to the voting and, and nominations uh, for any of the shows that we do. You can use it here for Elder Sign if you want, but you can use it for any of the shows where we, we do nominating. And that's true of the, the bonus episodes as well. And in fact, it's actually just this morning that I found out what the person who was the, the big winner for the review writing contest wants us to do. And in fact, Brandon, you're going to be off the hook, but uh, Valerie and I are going to do an episode of uh, Babylon 5 over on Lower Decks. Uh, in fact, I, I don't remember which episode or the name of the episode it is, but it's the one with Brad Dourif, who I know is someone you love, Brandon. So I do just... love Brad, Brad Dourif, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, so you'll just get the pleasure of just being in the audience for that one. So I think you uh, you sort of doubly won there. And I, <laughs> I do want to emphasize that this is for all of our shows. So even if this is the only show of ours or, or one of two or three that you listen to, and then there are two or three that you don't listen to, Still, we would love for you to to let people that you're connected with on social media know about even the, the shows that we do that you don't listen to. Uh, We're doing this here in September and October as well, so that we can get the big winner that bonus episode before the holidays. I think you know everyone would love that. And uh, like Brandon, before we get actually into the discussion, we'll stop holding this up. But I do just want to repeat 
and emphasize uh, Brandon's thanks. We do appreciate all of the work that so many of our listeners do in supporting the network and uh, helping us grow the network. I mean, our goal here really is to be around, to be doing this, to be a, a part of your uh, lives, not your daily lives, but I suppose your weekly routines uh, for decades, if we can manage it. So uh, on that note, on that note of thanks, uh, Brandon, let's uh, let's get into the uh, the craft stuff that you want to talk about. Yeah, as I said, there are just two categories that I want to cover in this discussion. I think, as we said, this story does work really well on its own terms. And, and there's not a, a necessarily a lot to dig into um, because it's light. It's a lot of fun. It's a humorous story. And Glenn and I just do not have the tools to talk about how the humor works in this story, which I think <laughs> uh, maybe a different uh, group of hosts might be able to do in, in a deeper way. But the craft is something I want to talk about. I pointed out the odd switching of point of view. There are two point of view shifts, one major one in a section break in the story where we switch to the villain's point of view, and then one really small one where we switch to the constable's point of view, all in the last act of the story here. And this seemed really odd to me. It seemed like an odd choice, uh, though maybe it was the right choice for the story. And I also pointed out the issue regarding Cabal uh, missing the fact that, you know, while he's standing in the crowd, scanning the crowd, at this parade at the carnival where there are policemen everywhere that he wasn't aware of this police constable early in the story, though this story did need that second person, that, that second hand for the two hander, um, that cabals that to me that undermined cabals total competence. And, and I just total competence to evaluate the situation, to be the great, observer and uh, master of heists and roots that we need him to be by the end of the story. And I wanted to get first your sense on what you felt of these particular things that jumped out to me, especially on a second reread of the story, and also what you thought of this story on a craft level. What worked for you? What did it? Well, I'll address your specific concern here again about this uh, constable noticing Cabal and how maybe that that doesn't speak to Cabal's competence. Because I, I, this this wasn't something that bothered me. Because to me, I thought that the way that Howard was presenting Cabal's competence, and this is in some ways kind of some necromantic competence porn, I, I think, right? Cabal is really good at doing this. Uh, we saw that in the the blustery day as well. But the the gimmick in both of those stories, so you know, one hundred percent of our very small sample size. Uh, but the gimmick <laughs> is that what Cabal is really good at is uh, dealing with uh, the unexpected, right? In in cleaning up the messes that he's made himself through perhaps his own sloppiness. And that that's the kind of thing he's prepared for, right? He has the plan and then he has backup plans and maybe several backup plans or, or, or contingencies, right? Because he assumes that something is going to go wrong and he seems to be prepared for that. And, uh, you know, I will stand by the fact that he, uh, he seems to be really really ready with that crowbar. So I'm not convinced entirely that he was unaware that the constable had spotted him uh, and was, uh, was, you know, on, on route to, to get him to, to, to enter the, the mortuary there. So this was not something that bothered me. I, I just think I would have handled it a little different. And this is totally a style or taste choice. Uh, and maybe just had the police constable or maybe even a morgue guard. Uh, I don't know why n nobody would be doing their jobs during this parade. I mean, certainly people still work even during uh, uh, modern <laughs> festivals and parades. Uh, and and maybe he would have un maybe he would have had the guard and, and cracked the guard over the head with the crowbar or something like that. Uh, 
as the guard is watching the parade kind of from below ground through the window. Something along those lines, just to emphasize Cabal's problem-solving skills, but also have him not miss something crucial to his own plan of getting these these body parts. It's just a little fix I was thinking about. Um, but what did you think about the switching of point of view that, that kind of comes out of nowhere at the end of the story? Well, I think that's even part of what's going on here with the crowbar and the constable at the beginning of the story is that Howard's humor here, the the, the, the humor, uh, the, the approach that Howard has to, to telling jokes here is that the jokes need to be unexpected. The jokes are kind of surprising, at least the, the jokes that are story beats anyway, right? There, I guess there are two levels of humor here. There's the wry comments, which I, I really loved. Uh, and then there are the story beats that are themselves jokes, right? That are meant to be funny. And the way Howard writes those is that they are surprising, right? Right. So we get the the business with the handcuffs at the end, the 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 look over there, and then the handcuffs, and then this bit with the, the crowbar as well. These things need to be told to us then from the perspective of the the I, I guess victim, I guess, or the object of the joke. Because if we're getting them from the subject of the joke, the person who's doing it, we the readers see these things coming, and that's not the type of humor that Howard is using here. And that's, I think, what the point of view shifts are for. I think these point of view shifts are to serve the jokes. This is normally something that I don't care for. Normally, my feeling is you should not break your world and you should not break your story, uh, your storytelling, right, your perspective, in order to make a joke. But I do actually think it works here. And I will say, I think that what makes it work is that that's actually what Howard is doing. Howard is setting out to write a funny story. And so that's the the mode the whole story is in. So he's not really maybe breaking something so much as just always working in this mode. It certainly doesn't feel like it breaks the story as you're reading it. And I also understand Howard's maybe lack of desire to narrate Cabal sneaking up fire escapes and (laughs) traveling across buildings and stuff like that. That would break the story more to give us a, a kind of a long scene of Cabal sneaking around than this point of view ship. Like I said, I don't think it's the wrong choice. It's just strange. And it's a strange choice to have uh, two major point of view shifts in the last act of the story and not kind of build that in throughout the story, if that's what you're doing. Um, But I totally understand the instinct and drive that Howard has to do this. And I don't think it breaks the story as much as um, Cabal, as much as having an internal monologue from Cabal as he's running across buildings, trying to sneak up on this puppet master dude, trying to think of where he knows him from. Were there any other things that really worked for you or didn't work for you in craft before we move on to the big question of this story? Something that really worked for me was the, the pacing of this story. This is one of the fastest paced, most actiony stories I think that we've done here on Elder Sign. Uh, that also is actually something that is not normally to my taste. I, I tend to love uh, these long, meandering novellas. I mean, I really loved the Blackwood novella, the uh, psychical invasion where we get, you know, 20 pages about cats and dogs uh, looking for a ghost <laughs> in a uh, uh, in an abandoned and an empty empty house an empty home uh, that's really my jam but I did appreciate the way that cabal tells this story quickly and punctually and then we're done yeah I mean I I certainly think I learned some lessons as a writer uh, as somebody who's an amateur and aspiring writer about pacing and storytelling from this story though this story was not entirely to my taste, liked it and it totally worked on its own level and i learned you know 
scene efficiency and character introduction efficiency. I mean, there's some real good craft at play here in this story. Well, now's, now's the big question that I want to ask about this story, which is the really an excuse for us to talk about the zombie apocalypse subgenre <laughs> of horror. Uh, you know, the zombie apocalypse as it stands or the walking dead or the undead coming back, uh, reanimated corpses, they're often... It's often used as a social commentary or critique, at least since Night of the Living Dead. It's been about racism, consumerism, capitalism, uh, theories of community and civilization and rebuilding civilization. I'd go so far to say that any zombie story, like any great monster movie, needs to have some sort of social commentary in order for it to function well, or at least to stand on its own legs. Uh, you know, you could even look at something like the Cornetto trilogy by Edgar Wright, two of which are kinds of zombie movies, Shaun of the Dead and uh, The End of the World, though The End of the World is maybe more of a body snatcher movie, which could be a kind of zombie story. Uh, those movies, all of them, including Hot Fuzz, are about the place of an individual within a community and the protection of community ideals and values. So uh, there's always something going on that, at a deeper level on these stories. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on why Howard chooses to reference the zombie apocalypse story rather than just calling it the Arishkagal working, um, especially in a story that's so close to the town that it's a part of, to maybe the role of the necromancer in this town or what Kabbalah's doing. Did you find any social commentary taking place in the story? Or do you think that the use of the phrase zombie apocalypse is here for the sole purpose of raising the stakes and giving us something familiar to associate the Arishkagal working with? This is one of these things that comes up all the time, and I think mostly in zombie stories and vampire stories, right? Where there's this question of question of how much do the characters know about what's going on, or understand, or can they infer, right? If if this were happening to us, we would infer an awful lot about it because we have seen a lot of zombie movies, read a lot of zombie stories, and 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 watched you know the entirety of the The Walking Dead, right? But there is an approach to this where you have your characters live in a world where there are no zombie movies, and so discovering zombies, being faced with the zombies coming, uh, is an entirely new and shocking thing that you're just not even mentally prepared for. That is actually what The Walking Dead does, right? The Walking Dead exists, or at least the TV show, I've not read the comic book, but The Walking Dead, the TV show, exists in a world where uh, George Romero never existed. No one's ever seen a zombie movie. There's no such thing as it. No one ever says the word zombie in The Walking Dead, and they have no frame of reference for what's going on there at all. Howard is doing the exact opposite of that, and we saw that in uh, the blustery day as well, which takes its title from a Winnie the Pooh book, right? Like it's uh, <laughs> right. So Howard is Howard is not just winking to his audience with these references. He's letting us know that Cabal and the the other characters in these stories live in the same world we do. That the art that we know exists in this world also, and that allows for Howard to write uh, a story uh, that has an eye towards poking fun at the conventions of the the genres by uh, allowing Cabal to be aware of what those conventions are and to poke fun of them directly himself, to comment on what type of story he's in and what might be different about this version of the story and and so on, right? It's a way for Howard to put into the, the mouth or at least the, the, the thoughts of his character some 
metatextual commentary on the genre that he's trying to be funny in. Yeah, I, I see that going on as well. And I do wonder if these comments about the cavalier nature in which people maybe take offense to others or the quickness to which people are willing to engage in a neighborly feud with other people or create vendettas is part of what Howard is commenting on in terms of the the zombie genre, how easy it is to forget that the neighbors that we have in a community that we live in are, are real people and not just inconveniences in terms of creating traffic in our towns <laughs> or as we're trying to go to work or mowing their lawn too early in the morning or being bad bosses or uh, blaming them for something that's happened to our family in some way. Um, and, and I wonder if that is, at least on some small level, the world in of comment, the world of commentary that Cabal that Howard is engaging with through this zombie apocalypse story. But I also wonder to me, if I didn't have to think about zombie apocalypse, if he didn't use that phrase and kept it a Rishkagal working, how my sense of the story or how my sense of my engagement with the story would have been a little different. It would be totally different. And I think my advice would be, though certainly people have done the opposite of it and done it quite well, but I think my advice would be that if you're telling a serious story, right, if you're not telling a funny story, that you should definitely call it the Ereshkigal working the whole way through and not use the word zombie, that you should be crafting a, a world that is entirely a, a secondary world, that is a, an imaginative world of your own making. I mean, even if it is set in our real world, I think that you should you should act as if the the, the fantastical element that you're introducing is unique and is a brand new thing. And then also, right, you can create your own lore about what the Ereshkigal working is. I mean, and there is some lore about that in here. It's Sumerian. Uh, so this is something that goes back to the oldest bits of civilization that we have uh, written records of, uh, you know, on the whole planet, right? So that's very cool that uh, that this this spell, I guess, uh, that uh, uh, this dude is able to just use uh, without too much trouble uh, dates back to dates back as far as civilization goes. That's some really cool bit of lore, but all of that is played for jokes here. But if you're going to not play that for jokes, if you're going to tell this story in a, in, a, in a totally different register, then I think that you want to keep things self-contained and in, in, in universe. That would be my advice anyway. You, you had asked, uh, I don't know, 10 minutes ago, Brandon, you had also pointed out <laughs> the way that zombie stories are a, a form of social commentary. Of course, you and I approach most stories as a form of, of, of social commentary, <laughs> uh, you know, whether it's criticism of the uh, the the uh, landed gentry's involvement in British imperialism or, or, uh, or you know, I don't know, something else. We find something almost all the time. And I do think there is something going on here, though I don't think it's anything quite as as serious or, or widespread or glaring as, uh, say, racism. But I do think that one of the things, maybe the theme that Howard is working with here is the contrast between being an expert and being an amateur. And I, Cabal is extremely competent. This is necromantic competency porn, right? I just keep want to keep saying that. So <laughs> I'm going to say it any chance I get this episode. But he is he is an expert and he's extraordinarily competent. And he has to save the whole world from 
someone who's just an imbecilic amateur who hasn't thought through the consequences of his actions, doesn't just know enough about what he's doing. He's figured out how to do this thing, but he doesn't know what any of the consequences or side effects of it are going to be. And that's a real problem, right? So there's a kind of a, a trust in experts here, or maybe a real sense that uh, isn't it awesome that experts are around to save us from uh, bumbling incompetent amateurs who have no business doing these types of things. Uh, you know, as far as social commentary goes, maybe not the, the most important message any of us have ever heard, or at least uh, most sort of immediately relevant uh, message that any of us have ever heard. But, uh, you know, I think that's what's here. Well, there is an argument to be made that it is the most immediately relevant message that any of us have heard, at least as we're recording uh, here in in May of, of 2020. But yeah, I, I think that's a that's a great point as well. So I think that's a fantastic note to end this story on. So that's going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and all our other shows and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Uh, and you can also find us talking about this other Johannes Cabal story on Patreon. And uh, that is patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. Uh, we would so much love to have you join us there. And if you liked our coverage of this story, if you have more thoughts on it, please join us on our forums uh, at claytemplemedia.com or our new subreddit and let us know what you thought of the Arishkagal working. Because I have no magical ability whatsoever, not a necromancer or, or a wizard of any sort, uh, I'm going to need to take a little bit more time off from the show, need a little bit more parental leave. But it turns out that we have another commissioned episode to fill in the gap. So uh, we're not really going to skip a- an episode at all. And so next time, we're going to be back with The Graveyard Heart by Roger Zelazny. And in fact, we have two episodes on that. That was a really substantial novella that we did. That was uh, really awesome. Uh, and then we'll be back to our regularly scheduled programming on October. October 6th with A Very Old Man with Enormous Wings by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, uh, which came in first on our most recent Patreon vote. Uh, And before we leave you, before we say farewell, I just want to remind people that we are starting this contest for social media sharing. And uh, we would love for you to be the person who gets to pick out a special bonus episode on whatever you would like us to talk about. But until next time, we greet you and say farewell.